Today, um, we are concluding our series uh, on Isaiah, and we've been looking at four passages known um, as the Songs of the Suffering Servant. Last Sunday, uh, Vanessa preached through the first half of a, a fourth servant song, and then today we're going to look at the second half. Now, to be clear, um, we, we split it in kind of this part A, part B. The song itself is not split. It's all one collective song. Um, we split it so that we can have uh, just one extra Sunday to, to really just sit in, in the richness of this song specifically. So interestingly, um, I shared a similar schedule as Vanessa did, um, where my family and I were out of town on vacation uh, the week prior. So this last week I was here, the week prior I was on vacation. We, um, we, we kind of started this tradition of uh, renting out an Airbnb, and so my whole side of the family, we got to spend time together. Um, eat, cook, play. We always get a place that has a big pool, so all the kids are just they're out there swimming. Uh, and then Tanya and I, at the tail end of it, we got two nights uh, away, uninterrupted, quality time together. And, and boy, oh boy, that, that was just a total gift. Um, and so then on Sunday, or Monday, technically Monday came back, but Sunday was here, um, I started back at work and I started sermon prepping. And uh, this whole week, of just being in this passage and, and studying this part of it, where I've landed and where I felt like God was tugging on my heart was to talk about sin. <laughs> so, um, so similar in that sense, last week you get struggle, or you get suffering, and then this week you get sin. Now, um, ju just to be clear too, uh, before we jump into our time today, um, I, I want to be clear, because it could sound like suffering and sin go hand in hand. They're not. They're not two sides of the same coin. Um, suffering and sin don't always happen together. And I want us to be careful because uh, I don't want us to jump into any conclusions when we see someone, right? Whether they're, they're currently suffering or they have suffered, it's easy to jump to conclusion to think, oh, maybe there's a sin that they've committed in their lives. That's not always the case. However, there is a reality that suffering and sin both exist in this world and in our lives. And the struggle that people face, and I would say us too, is really how to make sense of the suffering and sin that exists in the world. And it's not just making sense of the suffering and sin that exists, but ultimately, what do you do with suffering and sin? Now, people, as people of God, we, we have this unique perspective um, that Scripture reveals um, that we get to wrestle with. Um, uh, and, and work through and, and work out in our lives and in our relationships uh, in the church that ultimately, twins are right there, that ultimately is a gift that can be offered to this world. And so we have a message that we not only preach, but really are invited to embody ourselves, to our families, our neighbors, and to those around us. And so let's jump into our passage for today. Um, it'll be up here. Isaiah 53, uh, and it's a second part, or technically not second part, but we'll pick up from verse 7. So here's a reading of God's word. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, 
though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And, he, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among, uh, among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Amen. So what's the context of our passage? Um, Israel is in exile in Babylon at this time. Their exile was a direct result uh, of God's judgment upon the sins of Israel. And it wasn't just judgment that they lived under, but oppression and cruelty under the rule of the Babylonian Empire. Now, it, it's in the state of being where sin, judgment, suffering, um, oppression, loss of national identity, all of that, all of that is taking place and Israel is trying to make sense uh, of it all. And so the question of how Israel will make sense of the suffering and sin is very present to their experience. These uh, last few months, um, if, if you've been keeping up with the news, um, it, it's felt like a bombardment of just heaviness after another after another. And there's a lot going on in our world. There's a lot going on in our country. Um, there's a lot, I would even say, going on in our community. But there were two specific areas of, of the news that kind of hit me um, a bit deeper uh, and have been a cause of me kind of pulling back and observing what's going on in here. And one of the areas, uh, it's the January 6th hearings on the Capitol riot. And the other one is the sentencing of the officers, officers and individuals involved in the different racialized murders. See, these things were, were stuff that happened uh, in previous couple of years. But they're finally coming to a point now where it seems like some form of justice uh, will be seen. And it's in this place, um, as it seems like there's glimmers of hope for justice, that I'm stuck in this place of like wrestling and, and, and kind of sitting with and trying to figure out what's happening in here. And without getting um, too much into all of it, what I've drilled it down to is simply is this. When sin is present, my natural tendency is to separate from it, to pull away. And I've, I've observed this in my own life when, when sin rears itself out, and I've observed it in my kids when, when they feel like they're in trouble. Right? Their natural instinct is to pull away, to turn away, to run away, to move away. And so I want us to reflect on these questions. When we consider sin in the church, and I'm not talking about um, I'm, I'm not trying to ask what our theology of sin is. I'm also not asking about um, what it's like being caught in the act of sin. Um, rather, what I'm asking is when sin is present, what's been our experience of it? So what's our experience of sin in the church? Second one is how does it play out relationally between people? And then the third question is, how does it play out between those who identify as Christians and those who don't? See, sin separates. Sin breaks relationship. Sin causes a rift, right? 
it creates mistrust. Sin's ugly. It's the worst of us. It's hurtful. It's corruption. It's our jealousy. It's, it's part of our brokenness. And when sin rears itself, it's not pretty. It's hard. It's hurtful. And it's not something I, I, I would say any of us are inclined to draw near towards. See, our responses to sin, I, I think if we're honest, um, are generally in, in kind of two ways, two forms. And it's either that we take uh, the role of a savior, like, hey, I'm going to fix you, I'm going to make this better, which only speaks to our, our like, existing brokenness that's still there and unresolved. Or we choose to separate from it. We choose to pull away. We choose to, to separate from. Last week, uh, Vanessa referenced the, the, the Bema, 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 Bema podcast. <laughs> um, and I highly recommend checking it out. Like, if you're interested, go check it out. Ask me for the link. Ask Vanessa for the link. Um, and, and why it's so interesting is that they take the unique perspective of a Jewish, uh, through the lens of, of a Jewish cultural reader. And so when Jews read scripture, they consider themselves as part of the story. And it's not they, right, like us and them, but it's a collective we. And so it's a very communal story. And so for an example, let's read Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. I think that'll be up. It says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. And here it is. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is all poetic literature, and so the metaphor of he really is uh, uh, a display of Israel as a servant. Israel was intended to be the servant of God. And so Israel as a nation, God had given uh, judgment after judgment, proclamation after proclamation. Hey, turn away from your sin. Turn away from your sin. They didn't. So they ended up where? In exile in Babylon. And under that oppressive rule, they were experiencing suffering. They were experiencing all the cruelty, all the stuff that was there. And at the same time that it's happening, so I don't know exactly at what point, whether this is like post-exilic and it's a group that's reflecting on it. I'm kind of leaning towards that this is maybe a group currently in it. They're in exile and they're trying to figure out and navigate and make sense of all that's happening. Um, but at the same time, even, re re well, regardless, in their processing and trying to make sense, there's not a point where they say, Oh, those are the sinners that caused us to be here. And here we are, the ones that did not sin. Or those are the ones that have been unfaithful to the Lord. And here we are, the ones that, who have been faithful. It's all this collective identity. We are here. This is our lot. This is the result of our actions. And so how do we move forward? This is a really super unique perspective. And, and, and I want us to, to be able to take away from it. Oh, actually, here's one more note. So e even though they had this corporate collective uh, identity, 
this is not to say that every single Israelite person identified with the sin owned up to it, repented, and turned back to God. Right? Scripture says that. Not every single Israelite person did that. So that's not the case. But that corporate collective identity is so strong that they move forward together. And so for us as a church, not just our church physically here, but also as a church at large, what might it look like for the church to today to approach our identity in this way? How might a collective identity shape the church's presence in the world? See, I imagine um, there might be more grieving and, and lament for parts of our body who are hurting. Imagine a repentance and reconciliation for sins that have been committed, but the church never really owned up to. Imagine a church where there is greater unity while holding the uniqueness of one another and our culture and identities. It'd be a church that would give witness to this world that God is good and God is faithful. So what do we do with Isaiah and the Israelites um, in their judgment and failure? How do we see God's presence in that? See, there, there's two parts, well, there's three parts, maybe four parts to the book of Isaiah. And you have part one, which is uh, chapters 1 through 39. And if you've read uh, the, the latter part of that first part, it is judgment upon judgment upon judgment upon judgment. All the nations are judged, Israel included. And then it gets to this point in 36 where it turns into a narrative format. And it starts to talk about this, this king, King Hezekiah. And King Hezekiah showed some righteousness. And we get to chapter 39, and it's like, okay, there's some hope. But then Babylon comes on the scene. And what happens is that King Hezekiah opens the gates and shows him the storeroom of everything that he has. And the second to last paragraph is Isaiah pronouncing judgment on King Hezekiah. That Babylon has come to the door and all, all of you guys will be taken away. And so it's a weird spot because you're standing there thinking, okay, is all hope lost? Has Israelite completely failed? Has God abandoned this nation? But Isaiah 40 opens with this, and it'll be here. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has been received, uh, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God hadn't abandoned his people. And in fact, there's a shift here where if we believe that they're still in exile, God is saying, hey, I will carry you through. I will be in your midst. I will walk with you. I will give you a way out. See, no matter what man does, God's word will not be stopped. Isaiah, uh, if you read the, the first uh, chapter, um, the sins that were proclaimed upon them were rebellion, corruption, idolatry, injustice, oppression. They not only turned their back from God, 
but they were turning their back from each other. Where God said, hey, take care of my people, they were saying, I'm going to take care of myself. Where God said, hey, trust on me, they're saying, no, God, we, we got it ourselves. Yet these were the people that God had chosen to be his servants. These were the people that God had said, hey, I will make you into a great nation that you will be a blessing to this world. And yet what do we see? Their sins and their failures and God's judgment come upon them. And so there's uh, a distinction I want to make here. When we look at judgment, and, and this isn't, this isn't something fun to talk about, especially from Old Testament. There's a lot of controversy around it. Is God wrathful, right? God's judgment, I would argue, isn't an indicator of a wrathful God. See, God's judgment really is upon injustice that's happening, not upon the people. And what, God, what breaks God's heart is when people have turned away from them and his actions and their heart and their belief has, has created this rift, right? Yet at the same time, God says, I love you, I see you, I know you, I walk with you. And so we start to see this divide where God's promise of faithfulness is here and God's chosen people is here. And as you read through Old Testament, it seems to get further and further and further apart. And Isaiah is a reflection of that division and that divide and that rift that's moving. And then we get to chapter 53. Then we get to chapter 53. If we understand that the suffering servant was meant to be Israel and that they had failed, there's no hope for us. But in the midst of that, God had, been, had remained faithful to his promise. And so what's beautiful about Isaiah 53, one, it's undeniable to say that Jesus is seen in here, right, in this text. If you know Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, you're like, yes, Isaiah 53 is it. On the one hand, for Israelites that were in exile, they didn't see that. God was giving them a chance to say, hey, will you return? Will you be my servants? Will you turn from your ways? We see that they don't. And the rift continues to grow. But at the same time, for us sitting here today, what we get to, to receive and reflect on is the reality that Jesus, when he came on earth, lived his life so perfectly that he fulfilled all of scripture. And so when we look at all the commands, all the, the intention, all the identity that Israel was supposed to be and failed at doing, Jesus himself fully, fully embodied it. And that is hope. That is hope that will not change, that will not be shaken. There's one part of Isaiah 53 that's captured my heart, um, and it's that last piece where it says that he was poured out. He was poured out. And the, and the imagery here, if you see a cup being poured out, there's nothing left in it. It wasn't sprinkled. It wasn't splashed. It wasn't sprayed. It was poured out. Jesus himself poured out his life so that we might have life and life to its fullest. Now, here, here's a dilemma that I've been um, trying to wrestle with and work through. And it's this. Um, there's something perplexing um, about 
the reality of sin and that, in fact, it does cause separation, it breaks trust, and it creates a distance in our relationships. Yet at the same time that sin and its reality does that, what I would argue the only way out of sin is connection. Connection with God and connection with God's people. And so we have this, this tension of sin causing rift, and the only way out is sin, uh, of sin is, is connection. And it grieves my heart too, because as we ask the question about how sin has experienced in the church, I know countless stories that people carry, and probably many of us in this room too, whether ourselves have been uh, rejected, isolated, abandoned, outcasted, hurt, wounded because of sins that we've caused or our sin that's been caused to us. Maybe it's our family members, our friends, our neighbors, our relatives. These stories are very real in their very existence and, and, and they're very, uh, there's, there's, it's very abundant. And I think one of the problems of sin is that we as a church don't necessarily know what to do with it. We can get right theology about it. We can be clear about the identity of it, but what we do with it, I don't know if the church has really figured that out. So what is the way forward? And it's the same, where God has not abandoned us to our sins, where God has not abandoned the church to its failures. God gives us a way out, and that's been kind of the theme of, of these uh, uh, songs of the suffering servant that in the midst of whatever situation that we're in we are not stuck that God makes a way out and makes a way forward and so I want to propose um, a, a couple of uh, ways that um, I would offer maybe for us to practice here see the vision that I would get when I think of sin that's present, is one where not that we separate from and not that we deny or ignore, but one where sin is acknowledged, but at the same time that it's received. Maybe not that we're comfortable with it, but that we can see it for what it is and we can acknowledge a person that it bears upon. And so perhaps uh, maybe one step that we might take and I'd offer this is to perhaps give witness to each other's pain. I, I don't know about you guys, but sin and pain, it, it kind of goes, that I would say goes hand in hand. Two sides of the same coin. Anytime there's sin, there is pain. Whether individually or relationally, there's pain. And we see that as a result of generational sin. We see that as a result of broken relationships, um, of, of uh, self-identity, all of that. And so to give witness to each other's pain is to say, hey, I see what's going on. I see you. I hear it. I feel it. I acknowledge it. And if we could do that, it, it's not to say that we just air out our pain wherever we are but it helps to create an environment that says, hey, I, I, like, your pain is, is here. This is a place that your pain can be 
be held and be given space to err. The next thing is, is accompaniment. And the reason why this is important is sin doesn't go away overnight. As much as we want it to, that single prayer will not make that sin be broken or go away. Sin has residue. Sin is habitual. Sin affects our minds, our hearts, our bodies, all of it. And so to say, hey, overnight, pray this prayer and you're good. It doesn't work that way. And so to accompany each other through the seasons of, of yes, I feel like my sin is being healed and then um, um, lapsing back and then going forward, that's what the church is about. That's what we've been working towards. And that's what I think is going to be the hope and the healing that's offered. And the other thing is this, it's persistence, uh, persistent presence. And what I mean by that is I think when sin rears itself, um, there's a tendency if, if we are carrying anything that it would also re react and, and get triggered. And so that persistent presence is to say, hey, you know what? Okay, I, I see what's coming up here and I'm gonna observe what's going on here. And then I'm gonna work through this too at the same time that you're working through that. It's a presence that says, Sin is not just a, an individual experience, but it's a communal experience. It's very collective. And so whatever sin you have, I recognize that I still carry some sin too. And my hope, my prayer, my vision um, really is, is space. Isaiah 53 offers um, a hope forward. Because it's not just that Jesus embodied it and fulfilled it. But that latter part of Isaiah 53 says that in your persistence, your generations beyond you will receive blessings. There will be life that's poured out beyond just what you see and what you know. And that's the hope of the church. One of the things that we've pressed into these last year um, really is youth and children. And I think at the same time, as I look, step back and look at what, what's happened nationally, it's like youth and children have taken the back seat to safety, to care, to help, to support, to love, right? And as a church, I, I'm not saying that we're bucking that trend or we're trying to re react to that. But at the same time that we acknowledge, hey, our youth and our children are super important. We also recognize too that there's this larger systemic issue that's happening. And so as a church, one example of, of how we might continue moving forward too is to be present to one another, is to be present to our youth, is to be present to our children. And if I was to take the collective communal view, it would be that we would all be aunties and uncles to each other's kids. And how beautiful of a picture would that be? Because you wouldn't just get one cultural perspective. You'd get multiple. You wouldn't just get one story, but you would get multiple stories. And the hope of that generation coming after us, I would feel hopeful for